Good evening. I'm glad you could uh, come and uh, visit uh, episode 45, part 6 of 7 on the revelance of the Bible. Uh, just to update, uh, this is uh, part 6 of 7 and 7. The last part uh, I'm going to do this Friday at uh, 8 p.m. That'll be the um, 18th. The 18th of November. Now I have part seven of seven of Revelance of the Bible. And then next week, if all goes well, we're going to start on the Christian doctrine of man. Just to keep you updated, I'll have to. Uh, I'll, I've been doing my research on that, and uh, I've got a couple of books that I'm going to be using. And one of them is going to be uh, The Christian of Dr. Man by H. Wheeler Robinson. And uh, we'll check that out and uh, go from there. Let's uh, dive right into uh, part six of seven. And this is the sin and thought of the Bible. Uh, to deal fully with the biblical doctrine of sin uh, would require a treatise uh, and not a single chapter. Hence, uh, here again, it is only possible to concentrate attention on a few aspects of what Bible regards as the fundamental problem of man. Um, common to both Testaments is the recognition of the universality of sin. Quote, there is no man that sinneth not. That's in First Kings. Quote, unquote, um, quote again, uh, surely there is not a righteous man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That's in the Ecclesiastics. Um, quote, who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Or am I? I am pure from my sin. That's in uh, Proverbs. Again, here's another quote. Uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. First John. Another quote. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's in Romans. Quote again. In many things we all stumble. In James. All these passages conceive of sin as a phenomenon of individual experience. And such indeed it is. Yet. Of of yet, uh, this is but to touch the fringe of the problem, for we are parts one of another involving others in our activity, and it affects and affected ourselves by the activities of others. Excuse me. Moreover, there is a there's a representative sin in corporate sin. In early Israel, man was thought of primarily as a member of a community. His individual act might involve consequences for the community. Thus, um, at Kean, sin, Achaean's sin is preserving for his own use what should have been destroyed as an offering to God, uh, brought disaster on the nation. Joshua, you can see that in Joshua. His sin might lead others into sin. Jeroboam is repeatedly condemned, not alone because he sinned, but because in his sin, he made Israel to sin. The act of a king was especially liable to be visited on the community. Um, Abimelech asked, Wherein have I sinned against thee? that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin in Genesis. So, too, David's sin in numbering the people brought punishment on the whole nation in the visitation of the plague, Second Samuel. Here the king was acting as a representative of the community, and therefore his act could be held to involve them. Beyond this, there could be sin uh, which was truly corporate in that its guilt was corporately shared. The prophets denounced 
uh, national policies, which often were clear, not merely the policies of the king in the court, but policies which had the fall of the king and the court. But uh, the policies that had full support of the public opinion. They denounced the social unrighteousness, which was rampant in the life of the nation, marring with its inequity not only the lives of the individuals who sinned, but the entire structure of the society. Uh, they denounced the desertion of God, which was the root of all evil things they saw. Uh, they saw a desertion which they regarded as a national desertion. Similarly, the book of Deuteronomy contemplates a national loyalty to God, which shall entail all the blessings of national prosperity or a, a national uh, apostasy from God, which shall entail unspeakable national miseries and disasters. Moreover, the provision for dealing with sin by the sacrificial ritual clearly contemplate corporate sin as well as an individual sin. This is particularly clear in the case of the ritual of the Day of Atonement, when the sins of the community were conceived of as transferred to the goat that was sent away into the wilderness. Quote, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over it the inequities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions, even all their sins. And he put them upon the head of the goat and shall send it away by the hand of the man that is in the readiness into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear all the inequities unto solidarity land. Uh, Leviticus. It's in Leviticus. Moreover, a bullock together with the other goat was offered in a sacrifice, and the purpose of the sacrifice is to declare to be, quote, to make atonement for the children of Israel because of all their sins. In Leviticus. In the New Testament, the corporate and representative aspect of sin is less prominent, but is not wholly absent. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is regarded not merely as act of certain individuals, but as the act of Jewish nation. It was not simply a few private individuals who cried, crucify him. It was the constituted authorities of the Jews who condemned him and handed him to the Roman authorities for crucifixion. And when Jesus was being led out to be crucified, and many who followed him were weeping, he turned and said to them, Quote, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the, and the breasts that never gave suck. For if they do these things in the, in the green tree, what shall be done to the dry? And that's in Luke. It is not supposed to not supposed to be, it's not to be supposed that the crucifixion is here casually connected with all the, with the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is rather implied that the same root of sin which manifested itself in the crucifixion of Jesus would continue to produce and harvest evil of evil until it involved the nation in a, in a, a catastrophe of AD 70. The guilt of the crucifixion was shared by the nation, and it would produce fresh guilt, for as Ben-Azi said in the second century, quote, the reward of a transgression is another transgression, unquote. A different application of the concept of representative, representative uh, sin is Paul's argument in Rome, Romans. Um, where it was declared that Adam's sin involved all men in sin and the consequence thereof. Quote, for as though the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, even so, through the, through the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It's in Romans. Here, Adam is thought of as a representative of the race that should issue from him and committing them by his act. In the letters to the seven churches, which stand in Revelations, we find again a clear recognition that sin is not merely an individual matter. In each case, judgment is passed on the community for what it is 
regarded as the spiritual condition of the church as a corporate body. And it is made clear that where there is sin in the life of the church, it is the church and not alone the individuals who belong to it that will reap the dire consequences. Again, in the thought of the Bible, all sin is sin against God. This is not to say that uh, man cannot sin against man, but that sin against man is yet more more profoundly sin against God. Quote, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you, unquote, said Pharaoh. That's an exodus. I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, said the prodigal son, Luke. When David was rebuked by Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba and his scurvy treatment of loyal Uriah, Uriah, the king replied, I have sinned against the Lord, unquote. That's 2 Samuel. So in Psalm, uh, lie, which is associated in its heading with this incident, we read, uh, quote, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That was a psalm heading and are not reliable authority for the authorship and circumstance of the origin, origin of the psalm nearly scarcely be said, so that we cannot conclude from this heading that it is necessarily right ascribed. Whether so or not, it is relevant evidence for our present purpose, uh, showing that sin was thought of as primarily a fundamentally sin against God. So, too, when Joseph rejected the approaches of the master's wife, he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God in Genesis? Similarly, Paul says, quote, and thus sinning against the brethren, ye sin against Christ, 1 Corinthians. So, again, the prophets and all their denunciation of the uh, social evil of their day were concerned first and foremost for their offense against God, which it involved. They were not, uh, as has been already said, interested in the natural rights of man. And to them, sin was not the infringement of those rights. They were interested in the will of God. Man's rights were his because God willed them and because he was the child of God. And any denial of those rights was less an offense against the holder of those rights than against their great giver. Quote, What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? Unquote. Justice is justice because God wills it. And God wills it because it is in harmony with his own great and holy character. While all our offenses on the ethical principles which the prophets proclaimed as right and proper, they would not have accepted the description of themselves as preachers or ethics or have recognized that possessing their spirit any who divorce the advocacy of their principles from the thought of God. But if sin is man's offense against God, it is equally his curse of himself and all who are involved in his action. Quote, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, unquote, cried Ezekiel. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. That's an Ezekiel. And this is a frequent thought. Quote, his mischief shall return upon his own head and his violence shall come down upon his own pate. It's in Psalms. Quote, evil shall lay the wicked and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate in Psalms. Quote, he that soweth inequity shall reap calamity. That's in Proverbs. Quote, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's in Galatians. It curses him by bringing forth its own harvest of disaster in his own life and experience. It curses him too by the inner deterioration of his, of his own personality. By the uncleanliness of spirit, 
which the spiritual ritual was designed to renew. In passages where there is no reference to sacrifice, we equally find that it is this side of sin which is prominent. Quote, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In Psalms, quote, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. Unquote. Quote, cleanse thou me from hidden faults psalms nor is this all the curse he reaps beyond the marring of god's image in himself and defeating of god's purpose for him he he isolates himself from god and shuts himself out of divine fellowship quote cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy holy spirit from me psalms quote your inequities have separated between you and your god Isaiah. It is equally true that the sin from the community entails the curse of the community. That was the certainty that filled the hearts of the prophets. When they saw inequity around them, they prophesied of the coming disasters. It was not that they sagaciously saw the strength of the empires that lay around them and saw that Israel was bound to be swallowed up. There was a time when the armies of the proud and the vaunting uh, lay before the walls of Jerusalem, and the hearts of the kings and the people failed them. Well, Isaiah had serene confidence that deliverance uh, would wrought of God. It came by no human hand, but by the hand of a plague that carried off great numbers of the Assyrian soldiery and caused the proud aggressor to retire swiftly to his land. Quote, and the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when men arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead. So the king of Assyria departed. When the prophets prophesied disaster, it was not because their eyes were beyond the borders and because they believed military might was arrayed against them and the Lord's hand was shortened that it could not be saved but because they saw the evil within the borders and were persuaded that it would bring a harvest of evil quote they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind Hosea uh, the classic uh, expressions of these principles is to be found in Deuteronomy where the individual and the national blessing are promised to those who do the will of God and in individual and national disasters of those who forget him. Quote, it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Unquote, Deuteronomy. And 53 verses are devoted to the tale of the curse. Not seldom the disaster that sin entails are represented as brought by God upon men. It is perhaps truer to say that it's ingrained in the very natural of the world that God has made that uh, sin is self-destructive. He who puts his hand in the fire is burned, not because God wills that he shall be burned, but because it is a, of the nature of the fire to burn. Who eats poisoned food is poisoned, not because God thus punishes him, but because it is of nature the poisonous to poison. And similarly, he who sin, sins reaps trouble because it is of the nature of the sin to bring trouble. And the nation that sins reaps disaster because it is of the nature of sin to bring it. This is the will of God, only in the sense that his work expresses. He will, and this embodies uh, his will in the basic principles of the universe. Jesus reminded his hearers that the man who builds his house upon a rock will, fi will find it stands when the storms break upon it and the rains descend while he who builds his house upon the sand will find it collapse in a ruin of day of testing, 
in Matthew. It is of uh, no use for him to blame the storms or to argue that the rock and sand ought to be provided um, on an equal basis for his building. He must accept nature as it is. And he flouts in this peril. Yet in precisely the same way there is a moral and spiritual nature of things which is flouted by the man in his peril. They who build their life on the will of God build wisely and well, and their life is equal to every strain of circumstance. But they who build their life in aught but the will of God cannot cry out against him at the failure of their building. God has created a moral universe because he himself, a moral being, had he so enacted that good and evil produce the same effects, it would have not have been a moral universe that he created. It is not that he desires the desire that sin entails. Far from it, indeed. Have I any pleasure to, here's a quote, have I any pleasure to in the death of the wicked, saith the Lord God, and not rather that he should return from his way and live, unquote, Ezekiel. Quote, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Quote, unquote, the uh, quote again, the Lord in his long suffering to you, ward not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter. It is of his uh, benefits that he has so made us and our world in conformity to his will lies our truest well-being, whether as men of, or as nations. And when we violate that will of, of his grace, we reap disaster that, that, we will, that we may learn our folly. Nor is he content to let us learn. Learn his will by the negative tutor of the collapse of our building. When we do not build aright, but by the positive tutor of his revealed will, nowhere is a man so slow to learn as here. He early learned that fire burns, but not yet as he realized that in the will of God and his peace. Quote, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. But he that doeth the will of thy Father, which is in heaven. It's in Matthew. While then, as has been said, the hand of God may be seen in history, and he is not shut out of the world. He has made his activity in the field of history is in accordance with the fundamental principles of his being and in accordance with those fundamental principles on which he has created the world. When disaster falls on the sinning nation, it is not because God has taken some arbitrary decision against it, but because inherent in the very nature of the sin was blindness that would uh, stumble forward into disaster. The Old Testament can say, quote, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Polking of Assyria and the spirit of Tiglather Pilser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away. First Chronicles. And the Lord, quote, and the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, surely at the commandment of the Lord, and this upon Judah, Second Kings, and of the whole host of similarly utterances. They can assign these disasters to the sin of the people as their spring in such words as uh, the king of Egypt came up, king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem because they had trespassed against the Lord, Second Chronicles. But the most superficial reading of the prophets will reveal that not alone condemned the social and spiritual evils of their day and predicted disasters, but they equally condemned the alliances and and intrigues and revolts that directly provoked the disasters. To the prophets, these were not unrelated to the social and spiritual evils they perceived, but were manifestations of some utter blindness to the will of God. 
the people that uh, is insensitive to God's spirit in one aspect of its life will be insensitive to another and the nation that flouts the will of God in its eternal life is certain to flout it also in their external policies. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he cried, quote, Oh, that thou hast known in this day, even thou, the things which belong but to thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, when thine enemies shall throw up earthworks about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee on every side, and shall dash thee to the ground and thy children within thee, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. It's in Luke. The coming destruction is not thought of as arbitrary return for sin, but as inevitable issue of the same blindness which was already manifest. For sin carries within its own heart the seed of the destruction of the sinner. This does not mean that all suffering is a direct retribution of sin, Against that view in the book of Job is a great protest. Popular theology, as reflected in the thought of three friends, believed that suffering was the evidence of the fruit of sin, and hence that despite all the outer piety of Job's life, there must have been some secret spring of evil to account for his misfortunes. And the same idea still prevail in New Testament times, as we see the question, Quote, Rabbi, who did sin, this man of his parents, that he should be born blind? Unquote. That's in John. Uh, though here the possibility is recognized that one person's suffering may be the fruit of another's sin. Uh, while sin was regarded, <coughs> excuse me for a second. While sin was regarded as the sole causing of suffering and suffering as the proof of sin, the misery of suffering was intensified. For the spring of sympathy was at least partially blocked, and the consciousness of human judgment and the belief that God had withdrawn himself from him meant that the sufferer was most isolated when he most, uh, when he most needed the help. The book of Job tells a story of innocent suffering to proclaim that there is such a thing that therefore harsh judgment on the sufferer is not necessarily justified, nor is the sufferer necessarily shut off from God. In the case of Job, the reader must be given the explanation of suffering to show that it is really innocent. And in this case, we find that the sufferer is supremely honored of God. God has staked himself upon Job. And in his suffering, he is serving and vindicating God. Yet he himself can never know this. And if Job had been allowed to know it, the book, have, the book would have been robbed of its meaning. Since we suffer innocently, we may not know the cause. Uh, we can only trust that it is to serve some wise purpose of God. We may therefore find in his fellowship, even in the midst of the suffering itself, um, our peace and our strength. And this is the point that Job reaches when he has the vision of God. He repents. He repents uh, not of his trust in God, but of the charges against God that he has made in his ignorance. Quote, I had heard of thee by hearing of the ear, unquote. He says, quote, but now my eye seeth thee. Um, in his very suffering, he found God more truly than ever before. All the knowledge of God that he had hit, uh, hit thereto obtained even in the years of his prosperous piety, was the knowledge that he had gained in his suffering. But as the knowledge of the report compared with the knowledge of his experience, he had not merely vindicated God in his agony, he had found God uh, more truly and more deeply. So too the Apostle Paul, 
He suffered some physical problems whose precise nature we don't know, but which caused him intense agony. At times, it was almost too intense to be to born, and he cried out to God for deliverance from it. Instead, he found deliverance in his pain, and through it was lifted to a new experience of the grace of God in Christ, so that he learned to rejoice in the very suffering against which he had cried. Quote, Concerning this thing, I besought thee, Lord, thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's in Second Corinthians. Nor can it be supposed that in any age of any age, the sin of the sufferer was regarded as the only possible explanation of his suffering. When great and exceptional calamities fell upon him, men turned to this explanation, but offered his suffering was the clear consequence of the sin of another. All the prophetic denunciation of the ruthless oppressions of the poor by the rich, of the perversions of justice, and the reduction of slavery of simple peasants shows that the sin of one individual or one class is thought as of as capable of bringing suffering on others, nor can this be gainsaid. We are parts one of another, and we are involved in the acts of others, and that not merely when those acts are directed against us. Children are necessarily involved in the consequences of their parents' act. The man who under, undermines his own health by his indulgence in sin may pass to yet his unborn children. The fruits of that sin is a body which is diseased. The man who brings public shame upon himself brings shame too upon those who are most intimately connected to him. Uh, the man who by his improvidence of crime, reduces himself to poverty, brings all the sufferings of poverty to his family too. There are some who cry out against the injustice of all of this, who fail to realize that this is the working out of the benefits, beneficent principles on which the universe is established. They hold the possibility of blessings and the possibility of curse, and we who rejoice to accept the blessings must not complain of the curse. For the blessings far outweigh the curse. Into the inheritance of those who have gone before us, both in the narrow circle of the family and in the wider circle of the community, we have all entered. There are strains, there are strains of character and of culture, of achievement and of treasure. And that inheritance, and it is an enormous enrichment to us, but it is always possible for one generation to waste part of the her its heritage and to pass it on impaired. Yet it is equally possible for it to be enlarged. Men who can rejoice that in their bones is a love of freedom which is born in their, from their fathers may also receive from their fathers disease and the taint of evil men who can rejoice in all the privilege and all the opportunity which is theirs by virtue of achievement of their fathers or of the community to which they belong. Who can take pride in the memory of those who have gone before them may by the same token be forced to look back with shame. Yet again, there is vicarious suffering, the suffering of one whereby another is benefited. Wide is the range of this in your life. And when it comes to us with its demand, we should remember, too, its gifts. We can only here think of the highest form of the principle of the vicarious suffering. Um, it is when that suffering is freely and willingly accepted and when it is the fruit of another sin. The father who gives his life savings to pay the debts of his son and to the 
and to save from shame and dishonor the son of his love at the expense of his own humble provision for old ages suffering vicariously for his son's sin. In vicarious suffering figures in the Bible, not, not merely screening by its sacrifice, but saying cleansing, renewing, lifting the sinner out of his sin in the act of paying the price. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes were all healed. It's an Isaiah. Quote, This is my blood of the covenant which is shed for many unto remission of sins. Unquote Matthew. Christ also suffered for, for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. First Peter. While then all suffering is not the fruit of sin, much suffering is. For it is the nature of sin to bring suffering, and it brings suffering not alone to the sinner, but to those against whom it is directed, to those whose interests are bound to the sinners, and above all, to the heart of God himself. It's just here that the exceeding sinfulness of sin is revealed, and it is not when man realizes that he cannot sin to himself alone that he begins to perceive that the vast pressing problem that sin involves. No sin is a mere private matter. All sin is social, and all sin is sin against God. This is not to lighten the sense of responsibility upon the sinner, but greatly to increase it. It does not mean that when individual or national suffering falls upon us, we are lightly to assign it to cause to the sins of others, but that we should examine ourselves to see how far there is in our heart that evil thing whose nature is to produce evil. One man can sin, and his children reap the fruits. One generation can sin, and the next generation can pay the price. Uh, that is taught in the Bible, and is born out in experience. And in the days of Jeremiah, men comforted themselves with that thought. When disasters were falling upon the state of Judah, they blamed, uh, they blamed the policies of their fathers and quoted the proverb. Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Unquote. Jeremiah. But the whole burden of Jeremiah's ministry was, um, was that in the contemporary world of his day, sin was dominant, and he repudiated the proverb by saying, quote, Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Unquote. Ezekiel, too, uh, repudiated the same proverb and taught the individual responsibility of every man for his own life. Quote, the soul of the sinneth, it shall die. Uh, it cannot be not denied now that uh, there's some inner contradiction in these principles. Logically, if every man is responsible for himself, we're, we are not responsible for one another. And if the consequences of sin shall fall on the sinner, then he cannot involve others in those consequences. But life is always larger than logic, and as and uh, has been already said, truth is more often found in the ellipse of uh, the two foci than in the circle with a single center. And in the tensions between these two principles, logically unresolved, but every bound together in the reality of life, a fuller understanding of truth is found. And in this, this means that when the fruits of sin fall upon us, whether as individuals or as a community, though they may be largely the fruits of the sins of others, it is less spiritual, profitable, to cast the blame on them than to set against those sufferings all that we have received from others language institutions culture faith and to examine ourselves to see how far there is in us that same evil root uh, which has shared the responsibility for our plight 
and which will curse those who follow us as we are cursed. Not yet we have attempted to find sin. The biblical terms for it are many and varied. It is sometimes thought of as a missing of the way along the path of life, a failure to reach the true goal of life in a character which becomes a child of God. It is sometimes thought of as an act of rebellion against God, a repudiation of his sovereignty and his law. It is sometimes thought of as a result of some moral twist in our character. It is sometimes thought of as ignorance of the will of God, blindness to his way, or insensitiveness to his spirit. It is all these and more because it takes hundreds of forms. But fundamentally, it's disobedience to the will of God, failure to live and to act in accordance with those principles which inhere in his being. It may be active or passive disobedience, the doing of those things which are alien to his will, or to the failure to do the things that he ordains. Yet, it is not something that belongs to our acts, but to ourselves. It is revealed in our conduct, but its roots is in our character and our personalities. It is the antithesis of God's character. It is therefore antithesis of what God created us to be. For he made us in his own image. It follows this that in our thought of sin, we can concentrate on the guilt of sin or on the need that it reveals. The sinner is guilty of offenses against God. It rightly calls down upon him the wrath of God. The sentimental spirit of our age often chooses to ignore the aspect of sin and to eliminate the wrath of God from its thought of him. In doing this, it dispenses with the real element of the biblical revelation of God. For unless the ruthless oppressions of the weak by the strong calls forth the indignation of God, there is no meeting in the prophets. Sin is guilt, and guilt calls forth the divine com condemnation and divine penalties, even though those penalties are most often the inexorable working out of the principles that are inherent to the world because inherent to the heart of God. But emphasis on guilt of the sinner is quite inadequate to satisfy the biblical teaching, whether the Old or the New Testament. There is equally emphasis on the need for the sinner for deliverance from this burden which he has taken upon himself. This disease which is eating at his life, this stain which is disfiguring his character. The Old Testament has more to say on the offense of the sinner against God, and the New more on the divine pity for the sinner in this need. Yet both recognize the sinner's guilt and his need, and both recognize that it is the guilt which constitute his need, for his need is precisely for deliverance from the guilt. The elaborate ritual of the Old Testament was conceived of as a way of meeting the need for the purpose of the sin. Offering was to get rid of the guilt. How the offerings were thought to affect this lies beyond our subject here, but of the fact that the offering was believed to free him from guilt, there can be no doubt. It was a deliverance achieved by the sinner's offering, and while the initiative may be said to have come from God in that, he is believed to have prescribed the offering, the immediate initiative, and the particular act of deliverance came from the sinner, and that it was he who provided the offering. It has been said that the offering needed to be accompanied by the right spirit so that it was the organ of submission to God and not an empty form, but that the spirit was still something that came from inside of the sinner. In the New Testament, his need to recognize to be so vast that nothing that he himself can do can meet it. His sin that was destroyed the worth of his character has left him with nothing adequate to offer to God. He cannot rid himself of the burden that weighs him down, for that burden is not something extraneous attached to him. It is himself. Hence, if he is to be saved, 
He is to be saved by God alone. He is saved because the heart of God is not alone offended at the guilt of sin, but also filled with the yearning love over the need of the sinner. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Unquote. That's in John. That uh, this thought was also its root in the Old Testament has been said uh, in a previous uh, chapter before. I've talked about this before. For the Old Testament rec recognized recognizes that God is a God of love and that the ultimately he and he alone can cleanse and renew the sinner and minister to his needs uh, so that the offering, which is the organ of the sinner's submission, is also the organ of God's cleansing act. It releases no automatic power and its ministry is twofold, bearing the sinner's surrender to God and bringing the divine cleansing to him. It follows from this that salvation from sin is not just letting a man off the consequences of a sin, or rather, let us say, it is the deliverance from the inner consequences. Many of the outer consequences of sin are not avoided. A man who has ruined his bodily health by his indulgences in sin is not immediately given health when he is saved from his sin, nor will his children be delivered from the effects of his sin in their bodies. A man who has wasted his substance in sin has impoverished himself and his family must still bear the consequences of his sin. Even though he rejoices in the experiences of salvation, that's a terrible thing about sin. It brings inexorable consequences that not even the love of God can avert. And as the writer is talking about in this book, that taking this from, uh, which is, by the way, The Revelance of the Bible by H.H. H. Raleigh, um, he talks about having a friend that was a, uh, was at a uh, meeting where a man confessed to having seduced a number of girls before he found salvation and then added, but thank God I put all that right now. But he had not put it right and could not. No repentance on his part could undo the evil he had wrought in the lives of others. And in a reverence be it said, not even God could undo his evil past or make void all of his consequences. Salvation is salvation from sin from the inner deterioration of character. Quote, the reward of transgressions is a transgression, said Ben Ozzie. Uh, but salvation breaks the chain of the causation and starts a new chain of holiness. Which will yield fair fruits instead of a continued harvest of evil. Some of the effects of the old sins can be nullified and they can will be nullified. But even where their effects remains, there will also be a new spring of worthy life in harmony with the will of God, bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. But the inner effects of sin, the effects in the sinner's own heart and life, are abolished. He is freed from guilt. This was the object of the Old Testament ritual. This was the effect of the redemption in Christ in a New Testament thought. Quote, being made free from sin, ye become servants of righteousness, unquote, in Romans. Now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews. The sinner is cleansed and restored to purity of spirit. Purge me, quote, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In Psalms, uh, quote, Do you, Though your sins uh, be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Unquote. That's in Isaiah. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First John. The sinner is restored to fellowship with God. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. That's in Isaiah. Another quote, We were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Unquote. Romans. It is clear, then, that salvation, whether in the Old Testament thought 
or the new involves a complete yielding of the heart and life of the sinner to God to be recreated by him. If it is his sin to be purged, he must find anew the spring of his life and the will of God. The same is true of the community that it is to be redeemed from its sin. It must turn anew unto God that he may reveal to it his will, and it must find in that will its life and its peace. That all this is relevant to our need today can be easily seen. The world is acutely conscious of its distresses. On the grand scale of the widespread and devastating war, men of all nations profess that they did not want war, and the profession is doubtless true. Men of all nations look forward eagerly to the day when conflict shall cease, but what few appear to perceive is that war is the fruit of sin, and that peace will be enduring when men hate not war alone, but sin. That is why, in my judgment, pacifism is not deep enough. It aims to eliminate war by attacking war instead of by attacking its causes. On the other hand, it is easy to say, as most would uh, say, that this war has been brought upon the world by the aggressive wickedness of godless men who found it in their own proud ambitions the sole rule of life, who identified right with their will. It's more inclusively true to say that it has been brought upon us because men of all nations thought there was something more important than the will of God. Some thought their own ambition to dominate was more important than the will of God. Others thought their own safety was more important than the will of God. The sin differed widely in each case, and the measure of the guilt was not the same, but altogether contributed each in its measure to produce the desired result. Let's take, for example, when the German government made its demands on Czechoslovakia, four statesmen met in Munich and decided the fate of Czechoslovakia by an agreement that flouted all the principles of justice. The little state that was there dismembered was unrepresentative and unheard, while her powerful adversary was not merely heard, but was a member of the court that decided her fate. That we were prowless to thwart the aggressors and doubtless true. But we shared in responsibility and the guilt of this grim travesty of justice and congratulated ourselves that we had least averted war. We slightly varied the, the spacious uh, argument of, uh, of Caffius, St. John, and argued that it was expedient that one small nation should be sacrificed and that the whole world should be spared. That was sin. The sin of trying to build peace on the basis of injustice, the sin of believing that we could have peace while deserting the will of God. Let it not be for a moment supposed that I am suggesting that there lay the cause of war far from it. I merely find there are vivid illustrations of the fact that the will of righteous God was not thought to be a sufficient basis for the life of nations, and that we supposed there were more pressing claims upon us then, than his will. Whether at the end of the conflict we shall achieve a real peace will depend uh, on whether... Whether the need for will for the will of God to be found to be the foundation of every policy, anything else is sin, and sin comes back and occurs in the, on the sinner. Yet, though it is true, and the God will lies on our welfare, we shall seek it, not that we may be blessed, but because it is God's will, and because it therefore embodies a supreme wisdom. What has been said is also relevant to some of the problems that trouble men in a time of war. There are some who ask why God should permit more. If what has uh, been said is true, this really resolves itself into a question, why God should permit sin, since war is a fruit of sin. And no man who has exercised his own freedom to sin 
and whose life does not perfectly reflect the will of God has any right to ask why God should allow other men to sin. There are others who ask why war should be allowed to bring so much distress on many who clearly bear no share of responsibility for it, such as children. Here again, it has been said that part of the enormity of sin lies just in the power to involve the innocent in suffering, and our real horror should be directed against sin whose character is so evil. Moreover, all who are members of the community inevitably share the fruits of its sin, as well as the profits of its achievements. And this means that even children are involved in the perils which sin brings on the community, whether it be primarily the community's own sin or sin against it. It is not just that one child should be killed by a bomb. True. It is that it's the uh, fruit of the sin, and the sin is not justice. Its nature is alien to the will of God, and its fruits also are alien to his will. It is not just that another child should begin life with a body of predisposed to disease, but this again may be the fruit of sin. What, therefore, we should hate with our own soul is sin. We should realize that sin is not some pale abstraction of theology. We should know it for the worst foe of man. But if it is to be hated in the life of the nation or in the life of some other nation, it is equally to be hated in our own individual lives. For in so far as it is in our lives, it is polluting the life of the nation. The poison that is in the finger may spread through all and through all the body. And we who give sin currency in our lives may spread its currency to the state and in the world. And sin reigns in our hearts so long as God's will is not the law of life for us, and God's will is not our law of life. Until we live in his fellowship, our heart filled with his spirit, yet if sin reigns in our hearts, in Christ we may find recreation. The Christian gospel therefore ministers to the deepest need of our time, and the great message of the Bible is profoundly relevant to our most urgent problems. That's all I have on uh, part six of seven of the relevance of the Bible uh, by H. H. Raleigh. Um, also, I'm a Knight Templar. And if there's any questions you have about becoming a Knight Templar, you can go to our website at www.knightstemplars.com. Again, that's www.knightstemplars.com. Um, you can uh, join that website. You can send us questions through that website, even prayer requests if you have any. Or you can email me directly at davidr258 at comcast.net. Again, the website is www.americanightstemplars.com. Uh, before closing here, I'd like to say a little prayer about spiritual warfare. Almighty God, we thank you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, won on the cross over Satan. We want to live in the power of that victory even today and advance the cause of good. Restrain the forces that oppose your purposes. May we constantly remember that the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil has already been won. May you yourself continually be our vision that we may trust in you fully to see us through not depending on our own strength. May we stand firm in your spiritual resources. May our minds be set on you and your grace. May your righteousness be fully assured in Christ, and may we be ready to serve you as we live and speak for you. 
constantly taking in your word and praying to you. We do not want to lead lives that are constantly defeated. Your word declares that we are more than conquerors through Christ, and we pray for that too, to become true in our own lives even now. We pray too for our wider community and nation that you will release the unlimited power of Christ over spiritual forces that present bind people, that your will right now turn around situations we currently consider hopeless. Demonstrate that you are Lord of the world. Drive back areas of darkness. Bring healing where there is sickness and disease. May we all become strong and remain strong in you and your power. We pray all these things on the basis of your authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said earlier when we started uh, part seven of seven for the relevance of the Bible, I will do Friday the 18th at 8 p.m. Central Time USA. And hopefully next week we'll start on another series. Of, it's going to be called The Christian Doctrine of Men or of Man. Uh, I'll have something up. Uh, look for that like on Facebook. That's where I usually post things. And uh, we'll go from there. But in the meantime, may the Lord God bless you with many, many blessings and keep you held tightly in his arms. Have a great evening. Thank you for joining me here. Good night.